Well, this morning, uh, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. Good morning. Good morning. Matthew chapter 1. Um, we're going to look at a few verses this morning. But I think one of the most important duties of a Christian, and probably one that's neglected at times, is reading your Bible. I, I'm not going to take a poll of how many read your Bible every day, because... I know I would not be able to say, yes, I read my Bible every day. Uh, so I would not want to embarrass myself or any of you. <laughs> but we're coming on to the new year. You know, it's December 27th. And we're about ready to enter into 2016. And around this time of year, usually we have times where we have these grand, elaborate Bible reading programs where you can read through the Bible in a year and you read... 37 verses from here and then you read 20 verses over here and you can make your way through the Bible in a year or whatever. But those are all good. And I think that usually they start going really well. You, you can get through Genesis and, and then you can then it, it usually stalls, you know, when you get to Leviticus and that's, <laughs> that's a rough book to get through. And then you don't get through Leviticus and you're just like, oh, okay, I'll just read the Psalms again. And <laughs> that's usually what happens. I've tried to do that before and <laughs> I get bogged down in those those chapters in Leviticus or whatever. But I think another thing that bogs us down are sometimes are those chapters riddled throughout like Genesis and Chronicles and Kings about the genealogies where it's this guy begat this guy and this person married this person and they begat this person and it just goes on and on of names and begats and sons and daughters and all that kind of stuff. And those can get really laborious just because it's just listing of names and I think that a lot of times our, like, really, mm, yeah, invigorated Bible reading can get bogged down by these lists of begats. But the genealogies, um, they aren't wasted space. I think that sometimes we can think that it's just a waste of, how is this inspired? How is this in the biblical canon? But they're very, very important. And the Bible only treats of great things. Let me read you this quote, I thought it was just amazing, from Spurgeon. I like reading Spurgeon. He says this, The Bible treats of great things, and of great things only. There is nothing in this Bible which is unimportant. Every verse in it has a solemn meaning, and if we have not found it yet, we hope yet to do it. And I like this illustration. Spurgeon continues, You have seen mummies wrapped round and round with folds of linen. Well, God's Bible is like that. This is a vast roll of white linen woven in the loom of truth. So you will have to continue unwinding it roll after roll before you get the real meaning of it from the very depth. And when you have found, as you think, a part of the meaning, you will still need to keep on unwinding, unwinding. In all eternity, you will be unwinding the words of this great volume. <laughs> I just think that is, uh, wow. That's exactly what we're supposed to be doing with the word of God. Unwinding it, as Spurgeon says, a mummy, which is a weird illustration but we're just unwinding folds and folds and pages and pages of great spiritual truth for our lives and that's what the bible is you see that's what we can find in the genealogies they are so profitable the genealogies believe it or not they preach to us the gospel believe it or not they preach to us the very gospel of god because anytime you see a genealogy the first thing you should think of is that this is here because of jesus or you should say this is here to point me to Jesus. This is why it's in the Bible, is pointing me to Jesus Christ, the true Savior. And the genealogies should really hearken us back to the first gospel, Genesis 3.15, where the promise of the promised seed was made to Adam and Eve. And so really that's what 
we have here. It's just lines and lines of people begetting this person is leading us to the seed, the son, Jesus Christ. And these genealogies really unfold, I think, for us more and more of God's grace. Every single line we read of them. You know, let's read, I'm going to read Matthew chapter 1, and this is going to be somewhat meticulous, but Matthew 1 through 17, because I think there's something really important we find here. This is the genealogy of Jesus, and this is really Joseph's uh, genealogy. You can look at Luke 3, that's really Mary's genealogy as it leads to Christ. But verse 1 of Matthew 1, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat Judas and his brethren. And Judas begat Phares, and Zerah of Tamar, and Phares begat Ezram, and Ezram begat Aram. And Aram begat Aminadab, and Aminadab begat Nason, and Nason begat Salmon. And Salmon begat Boaz and Rahab of Rahab, and Boaz begat Obed of Ruth, and Obed begat Jesse. And Jesse begat David the king, and David the king begat Solomon, of her that had been the wife of Urias. And Solomon begat Reboam, and Reboam begat Abiah, and Abiah begat Asa, and Asa begat Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat begat Joram, and Joram begat Ozias, and Ozias begat Jotham, and Jotham begat Achaz, and Achaz begat Ezekias, and Ezekias begat Manasseh, and Manasseh begat Amon, and Amon begat Josias. And Josias begat Jeconias and his brethren, and about the, nine, about the time they were carried away to Babylon. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconias begat Salathiel, and Salathiel begat Zerubbabel. You should name your kid that, Matt, Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel begat Abuad, and Abuad begat Eliakim, and Eliakim begat Azor, and Azor begat Zadok, and Zadok begat Achim, and Achim begat Eliud. And Eliud begat Eleazar, and Eleazar begat Mathen, and Mathen begat Jacob, and Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David are fourteen generations, and from David until the carrying away unto Babylon are fourteen generations, and from the carrying away into Babylon unto Christ are fourteen generations. Now that seems quite meticulous, reading all these names and begats and who's and all that kind of stuff. But I think what's really important is just to look at who is in Jesus' family tree. Because there's a lot of names in here that we probably wouldn't think would be here. That we probably shouldn't, well, that we think shouldn't be here. You can just read through some of the names. And the, one of the first one that pops out is verse uh, 5, where it says, Boaz begat uh, Obed of Rahab. You remember Rahab? Is that right? Did I say that wrong? Boaz, uh, yeah, begat Obed. No. And Salmon begat Boaz of Rahab. Sorry, I, messed, I totally messed it up. Anyways. Rahab, remember Rahab? She was the harlot in Jericho that helped the, what was it, the 12 spies, 10 were bad and 2 were good or whatever. Remember that song? Um, uh, anyways, Rahab was the, the harlot in um, Jericho that helped, this, uh, helped the um, Israelites eventually t uh, assault that city. And also you remember she's also mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of, hall of faith as it is called. And it's just really interesting to see that she is included, a harlot, a prostitute. She's in Jesus' um, uh, family tree. But also you can look at other people like Jeconias. He's in there. He was a really violent person. <laughs> and you can just list through, go through all these names and look up their histories. And I think that's what's really, really amazing is you look at all these people's histories. And these people were included in the line of Christ. The kingly line of David. 
And there's two names I just really want to pull out because what's really exciting is that these people are here for us. Look at verse number 10. And Ezekiel begat Manasseh, and Manasseh begat Amon. And Manasseh. How many remember the story of Manasseh? Probably not. We don't often remember the story of Manasseh, but he's in Second Chronicles chapter 33 and Second Kings 21. You can kind of read through his story. I'm just going to summarize it really quickly because of Manasseh, his was sort of a tragic story. You know, he was the son of Hezekiah. Now, Hezekiah was a very godly king. He had done great work in uh, Judah, and what he was doing was he was making sure that every uh, Israelite was a God-fearing person. He was doing a lot of work in that endeavor. And then suddenly Hezekiah dies, and Manasseh takes the throne at age 12. And so now he's a 12-year-old ruling the kingdom, and what happens was he totally just goes off the rails from what his dad had started. His dad, Hezekiah, was God-fearing. He was just God-hating. Manasseh was just a totally wicked, wicked king. You can read about some of the stuff that he was doing. One of the most unbelievable things that he was doing, he was serving the, the idol Moloch, which if you know what that is, he, uh, it's where they um, do infant um, sacrifices to this god Moloch so that was he he started that there so now they're they're worshiping this idol they were worshiping devils they were worshiping demons all sorts of stuff that which is totally opposite from what his dad had started so this this nation comes comes from an upright a righteous somewhat kingdom and now it's sort of this abomination this den of abomination as it were there was all sorts of lustful worship practices and as i said infant sacrifices it is just amazing how far away he took this kingdom and he he runs he eventually gets um <clears throat> excuse me he gets captured he gets taken hostage by the assyrians the assyrians invade he gets taken hostage. And it's there. Look, actually flip over to Second Chronicles 33. Because it's there. While he, is in, uh, while he is in captivity, we find this really interesting verse. Second Chronicles 33. If I can find it. Second Chronicles 33. Look at verse 11. So he's in captivity. He is away from his kingdom. And he is taken cap- captive. Look at verse 11. And wherefore... The Lord brought upon them the captains of the host of the king of Assyria, which took Manasseh among the thorns and bound him with fetters and carried him to Babylon. And when he was in affliction, he besought the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the Lord God of his fathers and prayed to him and was entreated of him and heard his supplication and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord, he was God. I think that's an amazing story. Because really what happens is, and Spurgeon has a great sermon on this whole account of Manasseh. It basically, he had forgotten what he was taught as a child. And then here, as he's in captivity in Babylon, it's, I like how it says he remembered the God of his fathers. He remembered what he was taught when he was young. By his dad, Hezekiah, he remembers all the things that he was teaching him to be a humble and upright king. And that's where he literally finds God, or I should say God finds him. God finds him, and he eventually repents. And you can read the rest of the story. He goes back to his kingdom, and he tries to make this radical reform, but it doesn't, doesn't take weight because of all the stuff that he had done wrong beforehand. It, dev- it never, it never kind of takes hold of the city. They never are able to have that great revival that he so wanted it when he came back. 
But this Manasseh, he comes back and he is a rebel, and yet he is included in Jesus' line. But if you flip back to Matthew 1, I think there's another name that's more famous, but also nonetheless important for us, and that's verse 6. Matthew 1, 6, And Jesse begat David. And this is a loaded verse. And Jesse begat David, and David begat Solomon of her that had been the wife of Urias. Now, I'm sure you all know this story. You can find it in 2 Samuel 11 and then also verse in chapter 12. The story of David and Bathsheba. You know, David goes on the roof. He sees Bathsheba and he covets and lusts after her. He eventually has a child with her. And then he finds out, oh, dang, I'm pregnant with this girl that's not my wife. And then he gets the husband and he schemes to where the husband is just, there's almost no other chance, but he's going to die. So basically he murders this husband and then he marries this person he had an affair with. It's just a crazy story. A crazy story. And I think the crazier part is that he tries to cover up all this madness by murdering the husband. And it's just to cover all that up and make sure to cut off all these loose ends. But it, and it doesn't work. You can read Second Samuel 12 for that account where, of him being found out, as it were, by Nathan. But I think that's an amazing thing that David was the king, but I think, well, also, the amazing thing, actually, is, is this, is that I think it's in Second Samuel, later on in, in, the, in the book, it calls David the man after God's own heart. Now, we, we, we've, that's kind of what he's known as, David the man after God's own heart. He's the king, he's the upright king of Israel. He's just awesome. But he was called the man after God's own heart after this tragedy with Bathsheba. I think that's what's truly amazing, that he's called, that this guy, he is close to God. He loves God. He's a God-fearing king. And that's after he has committed this sin with Bathsheba. I think that is an amazing sign of God's grace, that he was called the man after God's own heart. He's really an embodiment, you know, of, of uh, 1 John 2, where it says the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Because that's really what he embodies as he is in this sin with Bathsheba. But yet God uses him in a mighty, mighty way. We all know King David. But I think what all that to say is this. I think we all, I think you don't have to raise your hands, but I think we all sort of have these, you know, as they say, skeletons in the closet. These sort of secrets that we will try our very best to keep secret. You know, that's what really makes a relationship is when you're revealing secrets and you become confiding in another person. And that's also, too, what makes it difficult when you don't want that other person to know you're trying to keep all these secrets. And I think that there's, there are certain things that we keep locked away, and that's what our whole lives are spent around doing is keeping these skeletons in the closet to try and keep up this facade of perfection, as it were. You know, our society is obsessed with perfection, I think. Perfection of way our body looks, perfection of way our life looks. That's why we have Facebook and all these things, so we can portray this perfect image of our lives. And one strike, one mess up, and you are just cut off. You can see that all the time, all these scandals that are turned into some somewhat stories, and you mess up once, and you're nothing to us now. And I think of two recent ones that are sort of in our Christian community somewhat. Do you remember um, the whole scandal with Josh Duggar? What happened with him? You know, he was on that show, the, the TLC 19 Kids and Counting or whatever. 
And that's this is the sort of a perfect portrait of the Christian family in the Midwest and all this kind of stuff. And they have 19 kids, which is just insane. And it comes out that he has been molesting his sisters for over a decade. And this guy is the, supposed to be the model person and people are looking up and following this family and this is his sort of skeleton in the closet, as it were. And he is just, and I'm not trying to downplay what he's done, but now he's a, just a social pariah and no one, can, no one wants to associate with them at all. Everything got, I think they don't even have a show anymore, I don't think anymore. Anyways... And I just, that's, it, it's insane to me that he would do that, number one, but also just the reactions of a lot of people. And another one, too, that I was sort of close to was, uh, have you ever heard of Tullian Trevigian? No? Yes, you? Yeah, he was a pastor down in South Florida, uh, a church called Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church. And he is the author of books like Jesus Plus Nothing Equals Everything and One Way Love, great, great books. And it came out uh, this past year that he was removed from his, the pastorate because he had an extramarital affair. And it's just really, what was sad to me was just not just that, that he would, that he would be deceived into thinking that that was okay. But the, the aftermath was just insane how, how Christians were just ridiculing and, and just throwing all sorts of hatred at him. Because he had done this. And I think it shows that we have to, we are just protecting our perfect, our perfect reputations. That that's what we're trying to do with a lot of our lives. That we're just trying to keep everyone thinking that we're all right. We got our suit buttoned and our tie all nice and neat. And we don't have any problems. We don't have any skeletons. But that, I think what Matthew 1 shows is that the gospel isn't afraid to sort of get its hands dirty. That God's not afraid to reach into your mess. He's not afraid of, of airing his you know, somewhat dirty laundry. <laughs> you look at Matthew chapter 1 and the first 17 verses. That's sort of what's happening. That this is, that's my uncle, this crazy guy. That this is my great-great-grandmother. She was a prostitute and all sorts of... It's an airing of dirty laundry. It's a, it's a revealing of skeletons. And when the dust settles, you know, the, this unbelieving crowd, they, and, and Josh Duggar and, and Pastor Tolian, they won't have two more chinks in the armor, so to speak, of, of the Bible doesn't work, that the Christian life isn't, isn't real, it's not, it's, not, it's not good enough, it's not sufficient. That's not what they have. You know what I think they have? They have two more examples of the extremity of God's grace. And just what we have in Matthew 1, that the reach of God's grace is... You can't even imagine it. You can't even fathom it. Our Heavenly Father isn't afraid to get His hands dirty. You know, these broken and bruised sinners are the exact people who God uses. And the Gospel is very clear of the kind of people that need saving. It's not those who pretend that they're all right, that they got everything together, that, they're, that everything's nice and neat and buttoned up. It's those who will readily admit their need. I think of that in... Luke chapter 18, if you remember that, the parable of the, of, the, of the publican and the Pharisee. And they're going up to the temple to pray. The one who is justified is not the Pharisee who is praying this lofty prayer, which it wasn't even a prayer, but he, wasn't, he was praying all these lofty, high spiritual things. The one who was justified was the publican. The one who said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You have no idea how far the grace of God can go. 
Imagine the deepest of depths, the most delinquent of depravities, and God's saving grace can find you there. I'm reminded of the verses in Psalm 139. Some of you, these might be your life verses. Psalm 139, 7 says, Whither shall I go from thy spirit? Or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me and thy right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be light about me. Yea, the darkness hideth not from thee, but the night shineth as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to thee. You can't, excuse me, you can't escape the reach of God's grace. I think forever our lives are going to be unfolding. Ephesians you know, 3.18 where it says, The height and the depth and the breadth and the length of God's love. God's disposition towards you, his, his thinking about you and his favor of you, it never, ever wavers. It never falters. God's, God, God's not hesitant in his favor of you and his forgiveness of you. He doesn't kind of hold it off and wait till you get better. That's, that's, praise God for that. He doesn't wait for you to get better before he forgives you. The Lord is a lover of the fallen, or as I like to say, Christ is the perfect Messiah for messed up people. He's the perfect Messiah for messed up people. And that's what Matthew 1 shows. There's a lot of mess ups, a lot of screw ups in this chapter. A lot of things don't go necessarily according to plan. But God loves sinners. God uses sinners and God loves sinners because sinners are all that they are. That's all that there is, is sinners. And, and to deny that you're a sinner is to really resist God's love. Everyone's in the same boat, as it says in Romans chapter 3, that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're all in the same boat. We're all desperate sinners in need of Matthew 11, the friend of sinners. Matthew eleven nineteen. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a man gluttonous and a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners. That's who Jesus is. See, don't let, your, don't let these mess-ups and these people that create these sort of scandals and these stories, don't let that shake your confidence in the gospel. I think that can sometimes happen where these people mess up who have been put on this sort of platform, this pedestal, and they mess up and they mess up in a grand way, a public way. And we can kind of lose sight that this, is, this doesn't really work. This Bible doesn't work. You're missing the point. You're missing the whole point of what the gospel is. The gospel is coming down to people who are desperate, who are dirty sinners. <laughs> it's not coming to perfect, righteous people. It's coming to those who are very imperfect and very unrighteous. You see, this was something I heard from a pastor, and I think it's very profound, that if your theology, if your view and thoughts of God, if your theology doesn't allow for the fact that your greatest failure is ahead of you, then you have the wrong theology. See, I think sometimes we think that getting saved automatically makes us, uh, automatically we're just going to, everything's going to be perfect and rainbows and unicorns and we're not going to have any problems again. But that's not the gospel. If you, it, that's why it's, 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 that's why we have to be constantly, as it says in Philippians 2, the work and the effort and the striving of our Christian life is to prove that this does work but that's not to say that your greatest failure isn't ahead of you. 
I, 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 don't, I hope that's not, none of us in here, but you could go to any room you could, you know, of, of young people that are believing in Jesus, and some of them will commit adultery. Some of them will fall into alcohol or drugs, or something's going to happen. Their greatest failure is most likely ahead of them. Why? Because we are broken, desperate people. And that's even who Jesus came for. Battered and bruised and wrecked people. Yes, even child molesters and adulterers and murderers. Those are the people that Jesus came for. Just think about who he came to first in Luke chapter 2. Remember? The first people who heard the gospel were not wise men and kings and the people that you think that should come to. It wasn't the most prestigious and the most important people. It was, in fact, the lowliest it was shepherds. And if you don't know what shepherds were like in this day, just, just think of just the most disgusting and despised and disrespected people. They were distrusted. They were nomads. They didn't really have a home or a nation or a country to call their own. They were just sort of wandering people. And they were always distrusted because they were known for being thieves. They were known for, for being just really vile people. And so when the angels show up in the night sky that night, and they show up and bam, there's all these angels. I don't imagine they were saying, that's good news. They were probably being like, oh, dang, okay, don't punish me, God. They were probably really scared. I'm sure they probably were. And I would love to know what they were talking about, like the moment before all those angels came up. You know, one pastor was saying how they were, like, imagine like locker room speak. If you've ever been in a locker room, that's probably what was going on. It wasn't much edifying, probably. <laughs> but all of a sudden... These angels appear and the mission of God was given to them. The first gospel, so to speak. What a scandal that it came to these people. But such is the mission of Jesus Christ. That he comes to lowly, desperate people. And I, one writer says it this way. God is not ashamed of the lowliness of human beings. God marches right in. He chooses people as his instruments and performs his wonders where one would least expect them. God is near to lowliness. He loves the lost, the neglected, the unseemly, the excluded, the weak and broken. Praise God for that. That he loves lowly people. And it was the mission of Jesus to minister to these lowly, sin-sick people. Not to the healthy not to the self-righteous, as he says in Matthew 9. But when Jesus heard that, he said unto them, They that behold need not a physician, but they that are sick. But go ye and learn what that meaneth. I will have mercy and not sacrifice, for I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That's what Jesus came to do. Come to lowly people, to people who had a lot of skeletons in their closet, who had a lot of dirty laundry in their closet. This is why Jesus was incarnated. This is why we can rejoice in this season, not just because it's Christmas and yay presents, but that Jesus came to enter into your mess, into the mess of all of our lives. That's, well, listen to what Spurgeon says. I like, I like reading and quoting Spurgeon, but he says this, The main stress and intent of the incarnation of God in the person of Christ lies with the guilty, the unworthy, and the lost. His errand of mercy has nothing to do with those who are good and righteous in themselves, if such there be, but it has to do with sinners, real sinners, guilty of not nominal, but of actual sins, and who have gone so far therein as to be lost. Real sinners, as he says. 
people who commit murder, and people who are, are adulterers, people who are very far away from where they should be, people who are rebels. That's who Jesus came to rescue. That's who he, Jesus came to deliver. And, the, and that's what the amazing thing about the gospel is. That the very reason the gospel exists is because there are sinners in need of saving. And that's why we can rejoice in saying that I'm a sinner. That means you're the one who Jesus came to save. Jesus comes bearing unadulterated grace, which should make you really just be fearful at how free it is. What is, Psalm 145 says this, The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and of great mercy. The Lord is good to all, and His tender mercies are over all His works. The Lord upholdeth all that fall and raiseth up all those that be bowed down. He is full of mercy. I think of this hymn. There's this hymn that I came across, and I just, I think these words are just insanely good. It says this, a debt of poverty, a debt thy poverty could never pay had not eternal wisdom found the way and with celestial wealth supplied thy store. And this, his justice makes the fine, his mercy quits the score. Seeing God descending in thy human frame, the offended suffering in the offender's name, all thy misdeeds to him imputed see and all his righteousness devolved on thee. His justice makes the fine. His mercy quits the score. That's what happens at the gospel. Unrighteous people are given perfect, holy, and righteous. Un, un, vile people are made good in God's sight because of the gospel. See, Jesus is the perfect Messiah for messed up people. Because he comes into our messes and he gives us his mercy. He's not afraid of your skeletons. He's not afraid of all the things that you think you are hiding. He knows. He sees. And he's the perfect one to say, I love you no matter what. And he's the one that will change you. He's the one that will make you <laughs> transform your life away from that. But he's the perfect Messiah for messed up people. Because you can never out the coverage of his forgiveness. You think of that. That's what I think also this passage shows to me too, is that whatever your sin be, no matter what your sin is, no matter what your life is, looks like right now, you are, there is more than enough saving grace in Jesus for you. It can cover everything. It can cover every single sin. And it will, it will make you not want to sin after that. Jesus is the perfect Messiah for messed up people. Let's pray.